Welcome to the Paru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose podcast. This podcast showcases inspiring appraisers and professionals from the industry who are leaders in their field. How did they get to where they are? What have they learned along the way? And what do they do now for their teams, their clients, and the industry? Your host is real estate investor, entrepreneur, and appraiser, Michael Hobbs. So Don, thanks for joining us on the Parusings Power Values podcast. Thrilled to have someone with such a pedigree as yours, one of the, I would say, truly rare individuals in the profession that's fourth generation. And when we think about the experience that many people either have not yet had or don't even know that they could have, I think you are an amazing example of a life around the industry and stories upon stories. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me today, Mike. Uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Well, I, uh, I would love to start out with um, just for people who don't have never even considered that someone could be a fourth generation appraiser or valuer. What, what does that look like? How far back in history does that go? And how many, how many family members are we talking about on which sides? Well, this would be on, on my mother's side. Uh, and, and well, my father married into the family. So okay. uh, it goes back to my mother's grandfather, 1914, started wow. a savings and loan, which at that time was called a building and loan in the back of a hardware store in 1914 in Cicero. Wow. And so in those days, uh, one guy wore multiple hats. And uh, an appraisal at that time was nothing more than a number and a signature going right back to the basics of USPAP. That's all it was. And it didn't mean that they knew any more or any less than we do today because appraisers had a very small market typically mm-hmm. instead of what we see today where we go over wider areas and have many clients. But so 1914, back of the hardware store, and then his son, my grandfather, uh, at some point took it from there. Um, my uh, Several of my great uncles were also appraisers. And then my father married into the family. So he was an appraiser. I believe my mother's brother, for a very short period of time, did some appraising as well. And um, all those people are basically uh, all dead, except for my uncle, who's been out of the business for many, many years. And my cousin. So I have a cousin that's actually about a fourth cousin to me uh, that we were fairly close growing up. And uh, he actually got into the appraisal business just a little before I did. So he's about 50 years into the business. And uh, uh, so he, he and I are the only ones left out of all the family members and all the relatives that have that have come into it. And my, my children have, uh, have decided to go into other things, which is okay. You know, uh, my, my family never said I had to do this. It was, uh, uh, I was asked at one point, uh, when I was a teenager as a teller in, in the savings and loan business, I was asked if I was interested in getting into the appraisal department. And so, I didn't really, you know, fully comprehend what my father had done before me and uncles and so on. 
but uh, the chief appraiser who came up to me for the savings loan while I was working in the tower line at uh, 18 years old, I asked him, well, well uh, could you tell me what would I have to do? He said, well, you'll, you'll be able to uh, work on appraisals and you'll get out of the office. I said, wait a minute. You mean I get to get out of the office that I've been trapped in all day? Wow. So I kind of said this was like a no-brainer. I said, like, where do I sign up to get out of the office? (laughs) And uh, so that that was kind of how it began. So I I started part-time. Actually, well, I was full-time that summer right, right out of high school. So what year? And, kind of uh, put that in perspective, so I, Don. Uh, what what year are we talking about? Because I think nineteen seventy seven. See, that's amazing. Because when we think back now to your origin story in nineteen fourteen, what a pivotal year in U.S. history that was. For many people, they don't have any perspective. But I mean, back then, the country only had a hundred million uh, people here, and that was the year nineteen fourteen that Babe Ruth first started for the Red Sox. To put it in perspective. And you know, being a Chicago guy, I know you'd appreciate that uh, Wegman Park started, or Wegman Park started, which was the precursor to Wrigley Field in 1914. Huge time. And back then, you know, Ford Motor Company took a big step of instituting $5 a wage, $5 a day wages. So we've seen so many things. And of course, in 1914 is when Germany invaded the neutral country of, of Belgium and the Panama Canal opened. So like so much happened in 1914, including the Martin legacy of, of four generations of appraisal. So here you are in the seventies coming uh, as a, as a part-time opportunity, getting into, getting into the field. And, and computers probably weren't even thought of by by anyone then or those that were thinking of it had no perspective as to as to what exactly that that might mean uh someday in the future mm-hmm. so uh you know we we've gone through amazing transformations uh with with uh, with technology obviously since then and, and going all the way uh forward to 1977 so at, at that point, the, the, there was a there was a little bit of technology. When I say little, I mean like really little in contrast <laughs> to today. But we 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 had we had computers that we'd already had for years at, at, at that time. And uh, but the 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 computers that I had in in high school were so big and uh, that you could walk inside them they were so big they were about the size of an average bedroom and and the computing the computing power of a typical smartphone uh, was it had to be at least a thousand times more for a smartphone today to put it into perspective as to as to the computer that we had when i was in high school and and we had uh fax machines at the time uh, but anybody today that tried to operate a fax machine that we used 45 years ago would would pick it up and smash it against the wall <laughs> until there's like nothing left of it. So, uh, so, uh, so mo- most people that will hear this probably don't know what a player piano is, but they used to have, uh, you know, and you see them at museums. 
the player piano, they had these spindles of pre-punched paper that had the music on it. And you loaded the spindle with these like punched holes in, into it, uh, into these player pianos, and it, and it would play by, it, by itself. And wow. so the, the first fax machines, uh, they, 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 had, uh, they had a telephone with a rotary dial uh, on it, and you had a cradle uh, like that you hold to talk with. And, and so you would take the cradle and you would, you would put it in, into like an armrest in the fax machine yes. and uh, load, load the paper in one piece of paper. And you would load that one piece of paper by wrapping it around a spindle, load the spindle oh, into the machine, amazing. Put, put the cradle into the machine and then dial the number. And so it would take, if you're lucky and it, and it came back clear on the destination side, it would take five minutes at a minimum to, to get wow. that one piece of paper <laughs> through to fax it. So because we, I worked for a savings and loan, uh, they were communicating, uh, trying to make a, a, a transfer of a document to, uh, uh, to another financial institution. So, yeah, to send one piece of paper would be about, about five minutes. And uh, the, 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 tellers, the tellers actually... Uh, we were online through a telephone system uh, with a data bank in downtown Chicago. And so that data bank connected to all the tower terminals by phone lines and uh, was, was amazingly slow. Uh, <laughs> but it, 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 was, it was considered a big advancement to, oh. to make our transactions. Sure. And uh, we had just gotten involved in a little bit of branch banking as a state chartered institution, but we were only allowed to have state chartered institutions within a very short distance. Oh, and uh, because computers were not like they are today, uh, w we still had we still had cards that we used to have to have to uh, have to pull. Uh, to record transactions, so we would have to walk back to a file and uh, and pull a card that was maybe I want to say about uh, five by eight, mm -hmm. and put it into the machine to record the transaction, and then then put the, this card back. Uh, you know, later in the day, at the end of the day, you file all, all your cards, and. Um, uh, and that was how we recorded our transactions in those days. If you came in for a withdrawal or a deposit, and so the appraisers, we 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 had no computers, not none at all. Everything was in was in book form, and um, uh, so it it, it really uh, was. Uh, what about? I, I would say about seven years later, as computers uh, really started uh, coming into uh the hands of appraisers uh, and they were far far crude today in contrast to uh, to uh, you know to what we have now but so that was how i got my start in the appraisal business though and to kind of put it in perspective kind of a little bit about what it ha is that we had to sure. work with and uh, and and the technology we had well 
basically our technology was was the cell phone was not a cell phone but a pager pager, nobody nobody (laughs) nobody nobody yeah nobody nobody could afford uh the uh pretty much the the first uh you know cell Cell phones that came out on the market which i think was like in the early 80s there was a early to mid 80s we had what was called the bag bag phone phone. i remember and this thing was you know like (laughs) Yeah, the bag phone, and so uh, that thing was was huge, but it it actually gave pretty good communications. Mm-hmm. And then we had what was called the boot phone that 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 followed that. Then why do they call it the boot phone? Well, it's kind of looked like like a a a, 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 a boot that was uh, would have been like ankle an ankle yeah. high boot, and, and, and the thing was was huge to to, to hold it up to talk to. Oh my goodness. So, uh, uh, and every time my boss, who was the chief appraiser, would would need me, because uh, maybe I was out in the field to say, hey, you know, while you're out, go look at this other property. Yes. Um, he would page me on my pager, and then I would have to look for basically all, uh, you know, I, I don't even know where you would find one. Yeah, pay phone. Pay phone. Yeah, yeah. And, go find a pay you, know, course, you had nickels and dimes and quarters phones. and everything. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, wow. you know, every, uh, pretty much every grocery store had a, had a pay phone yes. in it. You know, you, you go to A&P, uh, Kroger's, uh, you know, they'd all have like a pay phone in their lobby. Most restaurants had a pay phone in their lobby. And all the gas stations that have have pay phones in the parking lot, yes. And um, and, and occasionally you'd see pay phones on the side of the road, maybe near a bus stop or something. So there was lots and lots of pay phones. Yes, in those days. they were. Uh, but yeah, then you then then you had to pop a tool change, or you had to make a collect call. And so we we just made a collect call back to the office, and the, and, and did it that way, and didn't have to worry about having any change on us. Uh, but it was, you could just imagine what kind of a nuisance that was to have to, uh, you know, you get a page, then you got to go find a pay phone and you got to call in. And so, you know, uh, here, you know, people think, okay, well, if I've got to answer a call legally, I have to, I have to pull over and stop uh, as opposed to, you know, talking while I'm driving and, and potentially causing an accident. Oh yeah. So uh, people think that's a big difference to, to, to have to just, you know, pull over and talk on the phone. But, yeah, you know, it, it could take us, you know, five or ten minutes to find a place that had a had a pay phone to pull over. And, uh, you know, then hopefully the phone worked. And most of the time they did. But um, and, and, uh, all the truck stops had, had phones. All the rest stops on the expressways had, had phones. And so there were, there were a lot of phones. But uh, so. Uh, we had everything in book form uh, as far as our, our comps. And when but, you say um, book form, Don, in, in, the, in the savings room. To get a sense of it, you want to kind of describe how big those books were? Because they may have some idea of what a book looks like from a paperback standpoint, but you're not referring to that at all. No. So uh, the, 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 the books that, w- that we use uh, for some of the bigger boards would be like the Sears Roebuck catalog. Of course, most people probably don't know what that is anymore either. But, uh, it, it, you know, it, 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 
most of us have seen something that resembles like a Chicago phone book that would be maybe six or eight inches thick yes. and, uh, or thicker. And so uh, some of some of the uh, uh, bigger real estate boards, their their books were for the annual books were that thick, uh, but then depending on the board, they may have a monthly publication, they may have a quarterly publication, and um, uh, and uh, on a page, uh, they they might have uh, uh, multiple MLS sales on a page where some of them would just have one per page and have more information. Uh, but the amount of information that they had it with, had on those pages was uh, very minimal in contrast to what we have today in our MLS services online. And uh, the assessor's information, if we wanted assessment information, we had to physically go to the assessor's office. Don, what are you talking uh, about? You had to actually go see people? It's just Yeah, we had to see people. So, you know, and actually, as much as some of our younger appraisers, and hey, some of us older appraisers too, there's a lot of time that's involved in going to visit a local assessor or a local realtor. But that's what we did in those days. And so, yeah, most of that, if not all of it, can be accomplished by, by email, by phone today. But there was a huge benefit to doing that in those days. And that is, uh, we talked about this before the phone call today, uh, before we got uh, started recording this. We talked about socialization yes. of our young people today. And, uh, and so as, as an appraiser, you, you really had to have excellent socialization skills because you needed to, to have discussion with people in the business. And so we, we exchange our, our, our knowledge about what's going on. So this is, this is really something that still needs to take place today. It uh, doesn't happen as often as it, as it should. Uh, but really, good appraisers, even today, have to be good social animals. And, and so if you like to, to relate with people, if you like to exchange ideas, you know, it, being an appraiser is is really uh, is really a great thing. You get to sharpen your your mind <coughs> every day, yeah, multiple times true. a day. Working with, with working with people, it's just you know you may be working with them electronically to uh, exchange ideas. So we, we're 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 evolving, and we have these great tools of the the internet and great access to the information. But as many as many well-experienced appraisers will tell you is that you need to learn how to read between the lines. And sometimes there's just not enough information. <clears throat> there's not enough pictures to really tell you what's going on and, and why there's a sale that's occurred that uh, for some reason it's higher than our other comps or for some reason it's lower than our other comps. And that's when we need to really pick up the phone or send a simple email and see if we can get the information that way. But, um, you know, uh, many, many realtors uh, will respond very well by phone. Uh, they will tell you more than just going back and forth in an email or in a text. And 
after you've texted two or three questions back and back and forth, really what that tells you to do, pick up, pick the, up phone the phone and just, and just, and just call them real quick. Yeah, have a conversation with somebody. Your, have a, have a, yes, have a conversation, uh, you know, use your social skills and learn from everybody around you because they all have something to, to contribute. You may not know that they have something to contribute, but, uh, you know, you just you, this is how you learn what questions to ask at, by asking questions and see what they say. Yes. And and then maybe you hang up the phone and, and, and you realize there's something else you you should have asked them. Yes. Well, then pick up the phone and do it Call again. Again. Call them again. <laughs> and yeah. so, Don, spe- most, speaking, of th- most realtors are responsive. I was yeah. going to say, speaking of doing it again, Go we're going to pause just for a second at uh, like the 20, 20 minute, 30 second mark. And Simon, you want to make one adjustment? He wants to make sure that your your audio actually is, is coming across clean. He just wants to uh, uh, increase the crispness of it. Good idea. Because they can't see your big smile, but it's, it's uh, coming otherwise across. Otherwise, we... we... <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. You said it's all audio. It is right? all audio, but you know, you you can, you know, the motion comes across in uh, in the speaking voice. You can definitely, you can definitely hear your smile. There you go. How is how is that sounding, Simon? You got it taken care of. All right, so we're back. Very good. Basically one minute later now. Twenty one twenty one. So, Don, it is fascinating to hear about your involvement in the industry and your experience of the evolution of technology. I, I think another fascinating thing for so many people, and, and myself included, is the many people and specifically mentors that you've had an opportunity to work with that have really shaped you as a professional and guided your career. Um, you know, going all the way back, the lineage of uh, multiple generations, and specifically, as you mentioned, you know, your father getting involved in a family business, um, who, who have been kind of going back early on and maybe coming to more recent times, some of the most influential people that have helped guided you professionally and personally in this, in this industry. Well, I, I will tell you that, uh, uh, some of our listeners probably know George Opelka. Well, his father was Greg Opelka mm-hmm. and Greg was, uh, uh, was, past international president of, uh, of, of the Institute uh, back in the days when there was an Institute and a society before they merged together. And he was also president uh, in, uh, of the society, if my memory strikes me right. So, so uh, he was one, uh, one of many people that I was blessed to have a, as, a, a, as a mentor in, in those days, going back into the 70s and the 80s. Wow. And, um, uh, my, my father, of course, he was an SRA and my, my boss in the savings loan business, he was an SRA in our, and, uh, when I left the savings loan business, I went to work for an appraisal firm that had, uh, tw- about 27 full-time appraisers. Wow. And in that office, uh, we, yeah, in that, in that office, we had, uh, two individuals that were. MAIs, one of which was also an SREA, oh, and nice. uh, then we we had a couple of guys that were uh, were SRPAs that 
eventually the other two guys that were SRPAs that became MAIs as well. And, uh, and then we had a variety of other guys that, that really had, had the knowledge and ability to, to be that if they were so inclined to, but there's, you know, you'll find that there's a lot of people uh, that, <clears throat> that, that don't have the designations that are very skilled. Yes. They, they, they just have never taken the time. Sometimes, sometimes it's because they, they work for firms. They have all the work that, that they need and they don't really, they don't really care about the designation. So I'm not trying to say that a designation isn't something that you should ascribe yes. to, um, but certainly what it is that you should ascribe to, whether you get a designation or not, is education. Yes. And there, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as having too much education in this business. So uh, I, I, I worked with them for a couple of years. Then I went off to another firm that was a smaller firm. And by the way, in, the, in those days, which was in the uh, early to mid '80s, that was really the dawning of the computers in in uh, in, in those. Days. And uh, Greg Opelka, who was the chief appraiser for Chicago Area Savings Loan up in the northwest suburbs, um, he was one of the early guys that uh, that actually had a computer in his office. It was, wow. you know, of course, it had an old dot matrix. Printer, of course. So these young guys probably don't know what a dot <laughs> matrix is. No idea the is. sound of that dot matrix printer. But the, the dot matrix. Yeah. So in, in those days, the, 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 uh, the software, of course, was very crude. And the appraisal forms were were pre-printed and and came on a roll, and so you'd you'd feed this into the dot matrix, and and of course it was a challenge to kind of line up the pages so that when it would it would print onto the dot matrix printer, it would be lined up properly to print on the form. So inevitably, people would have it lined up wrong and destroy you know x number of copies. Uh, but that was kind of the you know. But when I first saw that in Greg Opelka's office, it was like science fiction <laughs> to most appraisers. And, and that was, but that was the first time I, I, I had I had seen anybody using a a computer software program. And so Greg was like light year, light wow. years ahead of the, 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 the rest of the appraisal profession when it when it comes to that. So um, you know, I was blessed to 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 know him and um I was on the editorial committee uh, under a couple of guys on the Society of Real Estate Appraisers uh, for a while back in those days. You know, so I, I, I learned some things from that. And um, then I went to an, uh, another uh, appraiser that oh, he was formerly a chief appraiser of a Chicago area savings and loan. And I had been doing work, uh, work for him while I worked full time for for uh, other people, including all the way back to the days I worked with the savings loan staff just a few years earlier. And uh, so uh, I w worked for this gentleman that was an MAI and was a chief appraiser of a Chicago area savings loan. And he went off on his own as well. And um, it, it was just good timing because I, I left the other appraisal firm that I had worked for for a couple of years. And, uh, and, and, and I had been doing a little bit of work for him in my off hours. And so I went to work full time. And so this was about, I want to say, uh, let's see, about 1986, okay. maybe 1985. And uh, yeah, I say about 1985, 86. That's right. So 
um, we um, uh, we got computers there, and we had had computers from uh, from the last place I worked at too. So I'll back up a bit. The place that I worked with for two yes. years, about a year after I got there, uh, we had uh, dual floppy drive computers, which again were very slow by two days <laughs> <laughs> by by today's comparison with today's computers so uh yeah dual floppy drives they were connected to a mainframe using day one software and um uh, they were very slow so the mainframe in the office uh, um was was housed right there and these 27 appraisers we had in the office were were all hooked up via these little uh pcs that had dual floppy drives so uh the, these were not the three and a half inch mm-hmm. floppies but the old five, five and a quarter, quarter. i mean they, they were really floppy as opposed to <laughs> yeah the old five and a quarters that, that, that you know they were like one step above the old microfiche and, and so uh uh those of you who don't know what microfiche is google that <laughs> give it a good laugh but the uh the old the, the old five and a quarters uh, were indeed very, very floppy like, and I think that's why they were, why we call them floppy drives. These were the disks we put in there. And so one of these had the software for the entire program uh, loaded on it. And the other one was what we called a DOS disk, disk operating system. And so first you, loaded in the disk operating system to boot the computer up and then you would load in the the software for for day one with the other and you would be connected to the mainframe so the mainframe's job was you were you were connected by by a cord basically and that that cord would uh, be recording the information that you're typing into the yes. appraisal report and there was no internet connectivity or like that in, uh, in in those days. Uh, so, but this was a this was a big advancement. And uh, you know, at the same time, like I said, I was learning from these uh, other individuals in the office. In the office, so we learned from each other. And uh, you know, somebody would run into a problem, we would share it with everybody else in in the office, because sooner or later, uh, the problems aren't unique it just you haven't run into Correct. it yet you will and so by ha- by having a big office it had the we had the ability to exchange what was going on and so i was very blessed at first i was very scared of computers but uh my mother back when i was in grammar school forced me to go take typing lessons. Oh, wow. Lucky you. And I did not know years later that that would become a huge yes. blessing because I typed my term papers in college that followed that. And then with the dawning of computers, well, I could type 70 words Holy a minute. Cow. So, and the keyboard was pretty much the same. That's amazing. The keyboard was pretty much the same as, as your basic, as your basic typewriter. Yes. And so, uh, uh, it, I really adapted very fast because of the knowledge that I had of a keyboard to computers. And so then when I went to the next appraisal firm, I was 
smaller uh, that was run by an MAI. He owned the firm. And um, I had already been working for him like part time for years I by see. that time. But he went off okay. on his own. So I was kind of his number one, number one first, first full time guy to, to work yes. with him. And so, again, I was really blessed to have somebody that knew the business. And I had already taken my my uh, uh, class that was called SREA 201 through the Society of Real Estate Appraisers. And that was uh, that was basically the theory class. So when I went to work with this other gentleman, I took the application class, income capitalization, yes. which was SREA 202, and took that. And so I, I was blessed because I, I, I had somebody around me to ask questions to, to teach me the business. Uh, and so this small firm, this guy knew uh, commercial industrial buildings backwards and forwards. And so I was really blessed to have him around. And I taught him about computers that I had learned from my previous oh, wow. place because he knew, he knew absolutely nothing about I see. computers. So... Uh, uh, so uh, Richard Hine and his uh, right hand was uh, Susan Shepard. Yeah, Richard Hine and Susan Shepard. They ran what is not now called ACI. This wow. is many years ago. So and the and, and yeah. So uh, small firm that I work for, we bought our our first two computers, one desktop and one laptop. So I got the laptop most of the time. And uh, and the secretary got the desktop, and that was all we had in the office. But Richard R R Richard Hines sent Susan Shepard out that that worked for him, flew her out uh, to to help us set this up with the software, and uh, it wasn't that difficult for me. So I I basically uh, tried to teach the boss, and I tried to teach the secretary. And so, you know, we slowly learned and over the years added more computer terminals and so on and, and grew that, that office. Uh, uh, but I had other people around me that were seasoned appraisers that slowly started coming to work there. And again, we had the ability to change each, uh, to exchange ideas. We could co-mentor. So this is the this is really an important thing that appraisers should know is it's is not only do you need mentors to start with you need mentors your entire career. Point. I'm 45 years into this. Wow. I have 45 years into this, and I have many friends in the appraisal business, uh, a number of which we bounce questions off mm -hmm. each other regularly about the properties that we're working Fantastic. on. Uh, and uh, so I have appraisers that. I have appraisers that work for me, and uh, some of them have more years of experience than I do, and they bounce questions off of, off of me. I bounce questions off of them. You are never done learning. So uh, you, as you come into the appraisal business, you need to uh, somehow find ways to make contacts and relationships. And so... Uh, uh, there are multiple professional appraisal organizations. So uh, you, you find out what you can about each of them and join one, one or more of them. Uh, so, and take courses from one or more of them. And so that you can meet people and, 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 and if possible, do it in a physical classroom because 
you know, whiteboards and things like that are great online, but it loses this personal contact relationship. So you use this to, to build on. And when you're looking for a job, you know, if somebody knows you from these classes that you've taken, you, you, you know, you call them up. This is called networking. <laughs> and so networking is really, really <laughs> important. As I know, Mike, I, I would oh, think that you would concur with I, that. I, I networking is, is just, you know, you have to do that all the, all the time. This is, uh, you know, sometimes we accidentally find clients oh, yes. that way because you don't know who you took this class with, who you took this class with in years to come, they're going to become the chief appraiser of uh, of a uh, of a savings loan, a savings bank, a bank, a credit mm-hmm. union, an insurance company, a government agency, and so you 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 build these contacts over over the years. And so I'm an advocate of doing things in person because you, you, it's uh, to me it's very difficult to establish those contact relationships taking a class online. There is a time and a place for everything. So with COVID, the last couple of years, that was very appropriate to not be in a classroom and come home sick. But but now this is this is really behind us or as close to behind us as it's going to be. So to to, to reestablish contact, to get back into these meetings and sh- and you know shaking hands or at least you know waving to people or or doing the double knuckle thing. Uh, knuckle to knuckle instead of shaking hands. You know, th- these are things that you need to do to establish those those relationships. To get those 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 mentors. Uh, if if you don't uh, if you don't use your social skills, it's not just going to happen. Being an appraiser requires you to be a social to social animal and to have those skills. Uh, to just simply talk to e- to each other, and sometimes okay, you're afraid to talk. It's just uh, it's just as simple as saying, "Hey, my name is Don Martin. Hey, my name is Mike Hobbs. What's your name? You know, what do you do? Where you're from? And um, uh, you know, it, it, it's how you start a simple conversation. It's really that that's simple. So those of you that don't feel you have those those skills, you do. You just don't know it. And uh, it, 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 it's like anything else. The first time you try and use your skills, it, uh, it, it, you may be a little intimidated. <laughs> You've got a room full of people that have a, have a lot of years uh, uh, on them, uh, but don't feel intimidated. Uh, one of the things that I, I have learned is, is that most people, they want some social contact and so uh, it, it's, it's the same thing, really, even with, you know, dating back in my high school and college days. It, it, it was a simple thing uh, that, you know, some guys, some gals wouldn't do uh, because they were just timid. But, uh, you know, the only way that you get people to say yes or no, for that matter, is to ask. And it's... Well. This is a very basic principle in business. It's not important how many people say no. It's only important how many people say yes. And if you haven't had anybody say yes, you either A, haven't asked enough people, or B, 
you need to sharpen your social skills. And the only way to sharpen your social skills is to use them. And uh, you will be amazed at how many people in the, in the appraisal business will be, or, or realtors, how many people will help you, but you have to ask. Will some say no? Of course they will. It's a great point, but Don. You, you will find those that will help you. That's how you will find your mentors, by that asking. That's a great point. And it's okay if they uh, no. say no. Move on to Very the next true. one. And I think your example, uh, although lighthearted and we had a humorous exchange, you know, your example of taking dance classes back in the day actually allowed you to stand out. I don't know that it's any different today in the appraisal profession. Yeah. You just got to ask. You got to knock on doors and um, uh, they're, they're, you don't know who is or isn't looking for an appraiser. And so even in today's market where, where we now see a period of rising interest rates, make those, make those calls, send those emails. Uh, calls are, are a good thing. Uh, sometimes you just can't reach people, try the emails. And where do you start? You start at the beginning. So there are professional directories uh, of the various appraisal organizations that are online. You can utilize those to find other appraisers to begin talking with. And where do you start? Well, you can start in the middle of the alphabet. You can start at the end of the alphabet and work your way backwards. You can start at the beginning of the alphabet and work your way to the end. And, and, and you just keep going. And, you, and if you didn't get the, the right answer, once you get uh, go from A to Z, what do you do? You start over again. And, and you know, maybe give it a little, little bit of time. But by the time you get from A to Z in the professional directories of an appraisal organization and have gone through all the different appraisal organizations, a significant amount of time will have passed. And so uh, there's nothing wrong with starting over again because maybe a few months, maybe a year has elapsed and they didn't need you at the time that you called them the last time, but maybe six months or a year later, they may remember that you talked to them. And there are very few people that actually pick up the phone and call. It's true. It's personalization. That is true. An attempt to use your social skills. Yeah. And, and, and maybe you talk to somebody that doesn't have a job for you, but they maybe, maybe they know somebody that does. Go to the big banks, go to the big savings and loans, the big savings banks, the credit unions, the government agencies that use appraisal services. There's lots of government agencies that use appraisal services, uh, a few of which are willing to start you out from scratch to train you and and maybe maybe even help you pay for your classes if you're so so inclined and so that it was always uh when i first started uh the organizations i worked for they allowed me to take any class i wanted and they would uh, they would pay for them if i successfully completed them that's great to hear. That's so yeah, you've, you've got to do your work on, uh, yeah, you've got to do your work on your side. Uh, and, and most organizations today, maybe they don't do that, but uh, you don't know which ones do and which ones don't anymore unless you 
start picking up the phone and start calling well, I think, around. I think your point uh, highlights persistence uh, in that um, not only does it get your foot in the door, but I think what's also so amazing, Don, is is how much of a lifestyle and, and opportunities in life you'd had you have had uh, or been able to experience, which is so impressive. And I think a lot of people who've been around the industry understand that for people maybe newer in the industry or might even be considering the industry, I don't think they have any idea of how broad of an experience you can gain and how deep or how wide it may go. But it'd be fascinating if you maybe share some of the, some of the things you've had an opportunity to experience over 45 years as a, as a profession, um, as opposed to just a practitioner. Uh, always go above what they ask you to do. So some, some individuals in every profession are just looking to complete what they, what they were told complete and they don't go above it. And so, uh, try and go something above on every job that you do. If you, if something isn't clear, it's ambiguous, attempt to do the research to make it as clear as you possibly can. Uh, pretty much any experienced appraiser will tell you that there are those things that will always be somewhat ambiguous, but you do the best you can to explain it. And this is the value of having peers because they probably at some point gone through this before and, and can help you make a little bit clear, uh, more clarity uh, so it's not so ambiguous. So this is one of the points, actually, that, that the Appraisal Foundation brought out uh, very loudly back, oh, at least six or eight years ago, and at various points in time before that. But uh, the, 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 they really wanted to make this uh, clear to us as, a, as appraisers is that uh, we don't just slap data in a form. We need, we need to explain and analyze what are the implications of, of what you're telling us. Don't just throw data uh, uh, on a page. What does this data mean? Why are you making condition adjustments? Why are you making time adjustments? And, and, and to, go into, uh, to go into a little bit of detail about it. Doesn't mean you have to write a master's dissertation, but sometimes two or three sentences about various different things can, can really make it clear to the client and the intended user of, of the appraisal yeah, report. Makes sense. And it, it's, it's our job. So this is, this is, this is one of the things that, that you should you should think about is, is that uh, well the appraisal number one is a risk assessment. And what do you mean by that, Don? And so in order to best yeah, you want to say a little this, more about that because uh, some people may not be as familiar with what you're well, talking about. Sure. So it's a risk assessment tool, and and an appraisal report is you are think of. You're, you're telling a story about the property. So there's a logical order of the, uh, of the appraisal. And those of you that are just coming into the business, you, you are just now learning this, that when you start inputting data on page one of a, a, of a standard form 1004 URAR appraisal report, that information with today's software automatically populates into other areas of, of the form. 
And so this risk assessment tool, it tells us, it tells us many things, some of which a lot of appraisers don't even know. Real simple things like the census tract data number at the top of page one on most appraisal forms off to the right side. What is the significance of that census tract number? Well, the, the first word census should, should give you an idea. Every census tract number represents 10,000 people. Every, every census tract number represents 10,000 people. So that, that, that's why you see areas uh, uh, like in, in, in uh, areas that are growing, you see this decimal 0.01, uh, 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 0.02 over time, because the areas, as the area grows, the, the census tract number is actually dividing. So maybe you had 8247, now you have 8247.01, and Each one of those decimal numbers now re represents 10,000 people. And so what is that information be being used for? Well, the, it, it, this is part of, and I forget what the acronym is, but there's what, what they used to call or probably still do call the HUMDA report. So this, this report is a log of every, every loan that's originated at the institution and the census tract number. And the federal government and, and other bodies look at this number to, to, to track things like discrimination mm, in housing, which, of course, today, especially today, but these last couple of years, has has really been been highlighted in what's going on. And this is not the only time in 45 years that I've heard it being highlighted. It's just happening. Uh, it's happening again very loudly these last couple of years. And so they use that census tract number and correlate it with with what's happening with appraisals, what's happening with 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 loans. They know the breakdown of those neighborhoods as to how many people of uh, different nationalities, different races, different income levels. And, and so there's a lot of correlation and importance of that census tract number. So some people are thinking, oh, it's just a stupid number. No, it, 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 that number is, is really important to get it, to get it and, to, to, and to have it accurate. So the FFIAC, the Federal Financial Information uh, 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 and Examination Council, I may not have gotten that acronym right, but yes. it's FFIEC. Uh, you can yep. Google that. So the 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 FFIEC, if you if you Google that, you go online, you can get the census tract maps uh, uh, using them for free and just inputting a property address. And in in, in some cases, if it's new and new construction, it will not locate it. But you can put in the uh, a different address in the same zip code. It'll pull it up, and you can. You can kind of uh, work with the map to, uh, and compare it with your own map to properly locate your subject property to make sure you have the correct census tract number. So some people don't know this. The appraisal software that they are using is sometimes wrong, No, especially right after a census. So where are we now? We are shortly after a census. So especially in areas that are growing out in our collar Counties, parts of Will County, Kendall, Kane, even Grundy, S some of the soundtrack numbers that come up in, in appraisal software, some of it is wrong because the, the census changed some of the census track numbers. So the information that's coming up in some of the appraisal software programs is correct 2010, 
But now that we've had the 2020 census, it takes several years before all the appraisal software providers catch up to that. So if you have new construction, particularly, or in an area where you have an existing house, well, the new construction has changed your existing house census track number, possibly, even though it may be 10 or 20 years old. Got it. So you may want to check that. So that, that's the importance of, uh, of just a, a little simple piece of information in this risk management tool, because the, the financial institutions that many of us work for and, and, and even government agencies with their policies, they're, they're tracking uh, uh, discrimination issues. And, and so just because it's not mortgage related doesn't mean that there couldn't be a significant discrimination issue. And uh, so we have the legal description that's in there that's available uh, uh, in many areas. You can get those uh, uh, online. And I'm, I'm surprised, actually, I've, I've, I've been kind of shocked that there are appraisers that are in this business for 20, 30 years and even longer that, that don't utilize a complete legal description that's free and it's, uh, and it's that's online. True. So, um, those of us that have been in the business a long time, we we know that the proper way to identify a property is actually, it's not by its, it's not by its Mm. physical address, although that is required. It's not even by its parcel number, even though that's required. The best way to, to identify the location of a subject property is by its complete legal description. That, that, is, that is the best way to locate a property. You should be doing that on every appraisal that you do when it is available, quote unquote, in the normal course of business. So those of us, for example, that do business in Cook County that includes Chicago and many other suburbs, uh, we can go uh, online to the Cook County Clerk's Office and usually get a complete legal description. And so you could copy and, and and paste the image of it in in an addenda page, or you can type the whole thing in into your legal description. Usually, I That's just type the whole thing. A good way to go in. about it, being able to type um, it in and the, all the that information, information being available and readily available now compared to yeah. before, where you'd have to go into different offices and meet with people and have those conversations. And even as you've touched on, there right. are experiences that you're seeing and or having now that have come up in the past, I I think an interesting one, which uh, we haven't talked too much about, but you could lend some perspective on, especially for people that uh, maybe are 50 or under and haven't had, don't have any sense of what's going on. And that is, how do you equate today's economic environment with uh, the 45 years you've been around the profession? And and what's, what's an idea of what's coming and the impact both on the typical U.S. citizen, um, as well as on the profession. Okay. So, um, and I'll just throw a couple of things out. We can go back to it if you like, but there's other risk assessment tools in the, in the appraisal, um, uh, like flood insurance and really quickly flood insurance, um, uh, flood insurance, you know, we use these, again, we're using automated flood maps. And so one of the things that, that appraisers need to know, uh, not only those of uh, that are just coming into the business now, but even experienced appraisers may not realize that the flood mapping programs that they're using through their appraisal software and other services 
And even those that the title companies use, sometimes they're wrong. And you as the appraiser are re required to have the right answer, even though the maps that you used through those services mm -hmm. might, might be wrong. So uh, you, you need to pull up the maps and take a look at them because, well, uh, you know, when you rate a condominium, are you rating just where the condominium is located? You are not. You are rating where the project is. If you look at a 1073 condominium appraisal form, you will see that it doesn't ask you where's the subject located relative to a special flood hazard area, but where is the project? That's the entire development. So if there's 832 condominiums, it's not only the 832 condominiums, it's the clubhouse, it's the green areas, it's the walking trails that are all part of that, uh, that HOA. If any, if any little breadcrumb of that development is in a special flood hazard area, the box you check is, yes, it's in mm -hmm. a special flood hazard area. You might be a half a mile away, object property, is not in there, but that's not the question on a 1073. It's, is the project in a special flood hazard area? So the appraisal software oftentimes comes back and says, no, it's not located, when in fact it is. Same thing even with single family detached. Some of these appraisal software uh, uh, flood map programs that they're tied to are locating the improvements uh, that are on the property rather than the entire property. If, so the rating on the special hazard area on a single family detached property is not where is the house, it's where is the property. So if any portion of the property, you know, even, you know, it, it's just a little tiny piece of the back or a little tiny piece of the front and it's not, in the, it, 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 it's not anywhere near the house, it doesn't matter. That's not the question. The question is basically is the property any part of the property located in a special flood hazard area. And I keep seeing these flood map programs come back and say no when the, when the answer is yes, it is in a special flood hazard area. And uh, a lot of our lenders and clients don't understand the language. They say the subject is not in a flood hazard area. Well, guess what, folks? A zone X, which doesn't require special flood hazard insurance, is a flood ha hazard area. So all properties, all properties are in a flood hazard area. So the ratings, uh, there are coastal ratings, and then there are ratings many of us in the Chicago area are familiar with, Zone AE or Zone X. Uh, those are the most common ones here. Uh, it doesn't mean that your property won't flood. These are just simply ratings. And <clears throat> so if you see a property that's sitting low, you need to talk about it because some of these properties, they're not in a special flood hazard area, but they, they, they may flood from time to time. I know of multiple properties that flood and they're not in a special flood hazard area. So you need to understand elevations. And just sometimes it's as simple as just, hey, stop and look around. Are you standing on low ground? That might be a clue. Uh, so the, uh, and the repairs that a home needs, uh, you know, okay, so it's not an FHA loan. It's not a VA loan. They don't require certain repairs. Does that mean that you shouldn't talk about the repairs to a property? No, you should talk about anything that you see 
to a property that needs a repair, give it discussion. The appraisal is a risk assessment tool. Even though the terms of the loan may not require repair, this is a risk assessment tool. The lender wants to know really what, what are they buying? So in most lending transactions, you know, we say that, that uh, Joe homeowner, Jane homeowner is buying this house, but uh, really it, it, it's the lender that's pretty much buying the house because usually they, they have 80%, 90% or some significant percentage of the bank's money or the savings alone or the credit union or, or, uh, or, or HUDs or the Department of Veteran Affairs, whoever it might be. They're the ones that have the biggest risk in the deal. Who's going to take back that loan if it if the loan goes south? And if you didn't tell them about about the repairs, if you didn't tell them about the flood risk because you measured it incorrectly, you cannot go back and and blame it on the appraisal software. It's your problem. It's our problem to correctly identify. So how do you do that? You, you take a good look at the maps that you're using. Usually the maps are, are current and correct, but you may have to, uh, you know, try and match it up with a plat, plat map, plat a survey, and where is my subject relative to these, to these maps? Uh, and and uh, so these are just a few of the things about the risk assessment tool. So getting back to your question about the e- economy yes. that we're now in and we're witnessing uh, rapid, rapid increases in, in interest rates. So this also relates yes. to risk assessment because with the changes in the interest rates, it's, it's, it, it can be difficult to see what is the di- direction. So with the use of things like the 1004 MC, and of course, we know that that is not a perfect tool and that Fannie Mae no longer re- requires it uh, for various reasons. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's an absolute bad tool. It, 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 it is a tool that sometimes in certain scenarios can be a very helpful tool, but it doesn't mean that's where we stop. So we can look at, at what's happening on a monthly basis, what's happening on a quarterly basis, what's happening on an annual basis, and sometimes a combination of those things to see the direction of the market. How is the mean changing? How is the median changing? How is the volume uh, of uh, of sales, how is the volume of homes under contract? Are the listing prices going up? Are they going down? Is the is the supply of homes beginning to increase? And so uh, there's been in many areas the last couple of years there has been a shortage in some areas where we have seen an escalation in prices because of the basic law of supply and demand. We don't have many houses. We have lots of demand. It puts pressure on prices to go up, just like any other economic good. Uh, uh, Lots of buyers, few sellers. Uh, So now the tables are starting to change. There still may be a shortage in some areas that are very high in demand. This is no longer true in some areas that did have shortages. It is changing right now. And as interest rates continue to escalate and have other repercussions on the economy, because it's not just that homes will be more difficult to purchase at the same price 
because maybe the mortgage payment, maybe it's doubled already over the last year and will continue to get higher. Uh, although some people are looking at this, well, it will bring down home prices, at least in some areas. And so there will be at least temporarily, quote unquote, a market correction with falling prices. How long prices will drop for? We do not, we do not know that. So we can go backward in time, and I'm not trying to blame any, any, <laughs> any president that was in office at the time, but, 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 but just, you know, people will recall Jimmy Carter, who was in office at the time, a phenomenal humanitarian, and, and so on. So he was in office at the time, and I'm not trying to blame him, uh, the, the Federal Reserve uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the administration in Washington are, 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 are largely separated. So we can blame the Federal Reserve. But again, why did the Federal Reserve uh, do this uh, 45 years ago? Well, they did it because we had high inflation. So they were trying to bring inflation un under control. And it, 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 it had significant impact into the real estate market with, with falling to prices, uh, a higher rate of foreclosures, because uh, some people had mortgages at balloon, uh, balloon mortgages that came due uh, during the years of high interest rates. We had interest rates at that time of 16 and 18 yes, percent yes. in the Carter years. Uh, so we're, nope. we're not at that level yet. We, we, we're not having a contest, so we don't want to hit 16 or 18 again, but we, we are uh, expecting uh, interest rates as high as 8% or higher before the end of the year, and uh, interest rates possibly to es escalate in, uh, well into the second quarter, maybe even the, into the third quarter of next year. We, we hope really as appraisers or those of us in other areas of real estate or both, we hope that it isn't. Uh, we hope that uh, inflation is getting under control and uh, interest rates will at some point level off. We don't know exactly when, and we hope it will come down a little bit. Uh, historically, my, my father used to tell me um, that uh, interest rates were uh, historically around plus or minus 5%, but that would be typical. So the, so the low rates of 2 and 3% that we saw were a phenomenon. Yeah. And the 16 and 18 percent we saw were a phenomenon. And as I was entering into the appraisal business at 16 and 18 percent interest rates, you know, to me that that, uh, you know, we thought that that was going to be around for forever. And when interest rates uh, started to drop, I bought my first home 13. at 13.9 percent. And I was amazing. glad to get it. Uh, and 13.9 percent. And uh, that was actually a discounted rate because by a half a percent, it would have wow. been 14.4. But because I worked for a savings and loan as an employee, as long as I remained an employee, I got that half a percent discount. And, um, uh, you know, uh, and at 13.9, we thought, oh, well, no, they've fallen, but we'll probably never even see 10% again. <laughs> And so over the years, they continued to fall and fall and fall and had, uh, you know, as they continued to fall, 
it seems like every time they fell, there was a wave of refinancing. And so uh, there, we will continue to see activity. There are people that have to move for their job. Uh, there are people that have to move for many reasons. And um, uh, we will see people that will continue to, to refinance or to get equity loans because they, they, they have a, a, a large medical expense. They need to send the kids to college. They need a new roof on their house. And they simply don't have that kind of cash just laying around in the bank. So we're going to continue to see activity. We don't know how busy it's, it, it's going to be. We see things that we can you know, go online and Google and we can see predictions. But nobody really knows these things for, for, for sure. And, and looking back over the past 45 years, there's going to be a lot of people that, that are going to make predictions as they are right now. And most of them are going to be wrong. And a few of them are going to be right. And the ones that turn out to be right is, is just mainly mm. by luck. If you have 100 people that guess how many jelly beans are in the jar, somebody's going to probably be right. <laughs> and most people are going to be wrong. And so they're going to think that the person or persons that are right are geniuses. And then, then the next uh, economic change takes place after everybody brought their, bought their books and thought they were geniuses. Then the next time around, they make a prediction. Everybody throws their money at them. That's, and uh, they're that's wrong. A good point. Because the likelihood that an economic, yeah, the likelihood that an economic forecaster Ooh. is going to be right all the time is real uh, close to zero. Real close yeah, to zero, as far number. as I can tell. <laughs> so, uh, there, yeah, real close to zero. But, uh, but 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 we do know basic basic things, and that is that rising interest rates mean falling prices. And the higher the interest rate, the greater the, the negative impact on prices, and it will re relate to other sectors of the economy because there were, there there's fewer homes being built. The contractors that are building them are less able to afford other things that they're buying, and it will have, as they say, a domino effect and yes. ripple through, through the economy. The severity of that ripple will depend, depend on a variety of factors. The biggest one being how fast the interest rates rise, how long they rise for, and exactly how, how, how high do they get. And so we, we, nobody can predict that. So how, given your experience, both as a professional and a homeowner, and so looking back over your first home loan, for home first mortgage at 13.9%, what type of uh, data or metrics do you pay attention to now in the, in the gap that you stand in for lenders around risk assessment? Yeah, you want me to repeat that for you? Uh, would you... Can you hear me now, Don? Yeah, thanks. No, no problem at all. Yeah, I was just asking, I'm sorry. given your experience uh, going yes, back 45 years in the industry and your first home that you purchased at 13.9% and recognizing that, uh, in, especially in the lending capacity, the appraisal is a risk mitigation tool. What type of data 
or particular analytics do you pay attention to to help fill that role of a valuation analyst to help clients make informed decisions? Well, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say everything. So uh, uh, NAR has a pretty smart guy. Mm-hmm. I believe his name is Lawrence Yoon. He's a big economic forecaster. I've actually talked to him in, in person many years ago. And um, other, other organizations I, I, I'm part of have had him for a guest speaker. So oh, that is how sure. I had my opportunity to personally talk to him. So uh, he says a lot of things that, that are, are pretty spot on. Uh, but again, he's not perfect either. And most of the things that he say, says are, are somewhat uh, generalizations. Uh, but he, he is just one of many economists to, uh, to listen to. Uh, but as far as how to relate to what are we looking at for, for, our, for our appraisal? So uh, the, 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 uh, the, the data that we have uh, for, uh, for residential properties is, uh, is pretty well expressed in, uh, in the, in, in, well, we have here in the Chicago and here, we have what we, what's called MRED, mm-hmm. the Midwest real estate data. And, um, uh, they have a variety of tools in there that you can use to help track what's going on. Uh, but very, very, very simply, uh, we, we've kind of hit on it already is, is, is the supply increasing in the markets? that you're looking at and uh the the sellers sometimes as they see this happening their realtors are in tune with their markets and the asking prices are Mm. are are beginning to drop and so i'm not seeing a lot of dropping in the asking prices in most areas but am i seeing it in some yes i am i i I won't i won't identify which areas those those are but it can be clearly seen by uh, by you know looking at those statistics in the MLS and looking at the asking prices. And there's a there are a couple of pocket areas out there that the average asking price is now dropping below prior sale prices, mm-hmm. and the and the sale to list ratios are at that hundred percent level or slightly below now. So we, we've seen areas in the Chicago and market that over the past couple of years have been 103%, yes. 105, 106% of the asking prices uh, because they've been selling that quickly. And so those, those, those numbers are coming down now in many areas. So you have to watch those and how it relates to your subject property. And uh, you know what, what are the closed sales? What are the listings? And you just you have to weigh all that information and try and determine what it means. And this is this is really a tough call for an appraiser. Do do we use do we use 489 sales that may have occurred in the market, or do we use the 13 sales that are most like our subject property? So so this is a judgment call that is oftentimes difficult to make. So if we yes. use too little data, it, it it doesn't have significant 
meaningfulness. If we use too much data, it similarly loses its meaningfulness because it, it, it's based on too many different types of properties and too many different price ranges and too many different architectural styles. And so where do we draw that, that, that line? In? Do we draw it if we're doing a three-bedroom, uh, two-bath home? Do we just look at three-bedroom, two-bath homes? Or do we expand that to three-bedroom, one-and-a-half to two-and-a-half baths? You know, maybe we have a split level. We just look at split levels, or do we look at what they, what some people call mid-levels, some people call bi-levels, some people call raised ranches? You know, where do we draw the line for what architectural style we're, we're looking at? So it's in a case-by-case basis. You know, it's just like people ask me, well, what adjustment <laughs> do I make for a fireplace? Well, I can tell you that. I, I can tell you that the fireplace on, on the million-dollar home where the land is worth a hundred thousand dollars is is probably going to be higher than than the area where the home is uh, thirty thousand dollars and the land value is either nothing or close to it. And so the 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 home that's thirty thousand dollars is likely that the fireplace is worth nothing. It adds nothing to the value. And in the million-dollar home where maybe the land value is 100000 or 200000 the fireplace probably has a significant contribution to value in the thousands of, of dollars. Where do, how many thousand? Well, that, that, that's where the paired sales analysis yep. you know, comes in to, to so. do this at, at both levels, the $30,000 house or the million-dollar and so you can you can do a paired sales analysis, and my guess is the thirty thousand dollar house is more often than not the fireplace going <laughs> to be worth that's zero. A good point. That is definitely a good point. Oh, oh um, and Don, it, you know that brings that brings kind of to a great kind of question to both um, kind of conclude your, in this case, just amazing uh, generational experience, as well as you know hopefully seed four more generations going forward, and that is for someone who's maybe you know in the first decade of their time in the profession, or maybe in their first uh, series of educational courses, or maybe even considering the industry as uh, a professional pursuit, what, uh, what words of wisdom would you offer them? Don't give up. If this is something that you want to do, then uh, I, I hit on this earlier. It's not important how many people say no. It's only important how many people say yes. If nobody said yes, then you haven't either A, you haven't asked enough people, or B, you need to figure out how to I sharpen my presentation either with my verbal, uh, my verbal skills or uh, how, do I write a, how do I write a resume? How do I present myself? How much information is, is, is too much info, information? How much is not enough? So I, uh, it was one thing I was actually blessed with many, many years ago when I left the savings and loan business. Um, the, the personnel director was, uh, was an acquaintance of mine, and I actually was blessed to have him help me, oh. teach me how to write a resume. Sure. Yeah, they taught me that in college, but, uh, you know, different pres- Different professions write their resumes a, a, a little bit differently, and there's a lot of similarities, but there are some differences too. So to find somebody, uh, you know, how did you get your job? What did you use to present to to firms that were looking for an appraiser? And and some firms, um, 
you know, maybe they could care less about, about a resume. They want to know how long you've been in business and maybe, uh, you know, just talk to them a few minutes about what, what is it that you want to do? What areas that do you want to serve? And what is it that you have to offer the appraisal firm that, that, that you come to? And how hard are you willing to work? If we're busy, are you, are you going to work beyond 40 hours? Or, you know, are, are, you, are you looking for that life-work balance? I mean, that's, that's a very difficult thing. Some people have been really successful to have a great life work uh, balance. And, um, uh, you know, they work their 40 hours, they're done. I have a couple of appraisers that work for me. And uh, if I want to talk to them in non-working hours, I might as well ask to pull their teeth out. But I have, I have other guys, you know, that are, it's different. That are, that are kind of like me. I work 90 to 100 You're an hours, Iron Man. hours I mean, a week. Yeah, I totally yeah. appreciate so, that. So, uh, but <laughs> I, don't know about, I don't know about that. But, uh, show what you're, sure. you're willing to do to come to the table. And e- even if, uh, you know, you, you want to work the standard 40 hours a week, okay, that that's great. Just, you know, uh, what are you bringing to the table? What are you willing, uh, willing to do? Uh, okay. Uh, if, if need be, instead of, you know, going 10 or 20 miles, maybe I'll go a yes. little bit farther. I'm going to need help because maybe I'm going into an area. So USPAP has this thing about competency that if you're going into an area that you're unfamiliar with, you simply ask for help to That's get the job thing. done properly because yes. competency does require to get it done properly, even though it's, you know, and to let the appraiser or firm, whatever that you're going to work for, give some indication that you comprehend and understand the basic principles of the appraisal profession and the basic things that you learned in USPAP. And just keep reading this information over and over again. So I will tell you that, uh, a number of years ago, Danny Wiley, who was one of my instructors, to, uh, and he was also the oh, chairperson yeah. at one time of the Appraisal yes, Standards was. Board, but he was the instructor that taught, taught instructors. And, and, and Danny, he is, he is, you know, I, and I don't want to defame other, other USPAP uh, uh, instructors because there's yes. a lot of people that really know USPAP well, but uh, at, at least the, that I understood Danny and the people I've known before and, and since uh, is that uh, he, he knew it backwards and forwards, uh, second to none, perhaps others equal, yes. but second to none. So one of the things that, that, that he told me uh, about USPAP and told the whole class is uh, that he has read USPAP cover to cover at least a hundred times mm. and doesn't <laughs> understand it. I don't know that makes me feel good or and bad. Dude. Yeah. No, no, I'm just sitting there like, uh, hmm, <laughs> that's something else. Well, uh, I, yeah, well, I would make as a parallel uh, to, to scripture, to, to the Bible. So well, USPAP is the it. appraiser's Bible. As opposed to, as opposed to the Christian Bible or the Quran or whatever you use as yes. your guiding light in in life, that these documents are are, are 
uh, are very difficult to, to, to understand. And every time you read mm -hmm. them, you understand them more. And so that's really what yes. Amy is communicating is that you don't, don't stop, learning. stop learning, not just use PEP, but everything about the appraisal business. Read it again and again and again and again. And even, even 45 years later, I still have those aha moments. Well, gee, that's what they really meant, which is different than what I thought it meant maybe yes. 45 years ago. But uh, don't, don't be disappointed in yourself because you didn't quite get it or you're not quite getting it now. It just means that, that you have to keep going. You don't give up. If this is what you want to do, there's only one way, and that is to continue to, to, to move forward, do the best that you can. Um, Roosevelt said many years ago, and I will paraphrase, uh, do the best you can from where you are with what you have. Done. And so those, those, those are real basic tools. Um, one of my fellow friends that's in a, that's an MAI he uses that 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 statement all the time to pick on the MAIs again and again this is not to defend anybody that's not an MAI because I know many brilliant people we that are that are that we understand. No question about it and I and I know people uh, I know people of every designation that sometimes I have to scratch my head and wonder how they how they got it and that that is not to defend any specific designation it's just to make a generalization that we need to continue to learn no matter who you are no matter what your designation is or is not you need to continue to to uh, to, to learn so it's another use pep principle that that about competency is it's not okay to stay the same with your education that is not okay you need to continue to learn that is a basic use pep uh, pro, uh comment about competency it, it is not static. i think that's it absolutely fluid. fantastic don between the uh have to continue to learn as well as the roosevelt quote it is uh it's it's a testament to not only you and what you've accomplished in uh nearly five decades of being in the industry but also the people that have impacted you and more importantly, all the many people in your different involvements around the industry and teaching at universities as an instructor of uh, USPAP and other activities that you, uh, you exude that and it comes clear, comes clearly through and uh, really grateful for this time. And thank you so much for sharing so much. And there's still so much more to you, Don Martin, which is what's so impressive. And, uh, you know, what I always, what I'm grateful about is you're, you're very helpful and approachable individual, much as though you guide others to take that into account, like reach out and maybe they can assist you. Maybe they can't, but if you don't ask, you don't know, um, Don, how can people get in touch with you if they'd love to pick your brain or be one of those individuals who bounces ideas around? Well, there, there's, uh, there's a couple of different ways. Uh, one is they can find me very simply, uh, Martin Appraisals. There's an okay. S on the end there, martinappraisals.com. And that'll get you to my website. And um, there's different articles I've written for different trade journals over the years that are there. 
Um, and so while some of those articles are now, you know, like 15, 20 years old, the, the principles addressed in those articles, they don't, uh, they don't really change. The, our, our tools of, uh, to find the information change, but the, the, the basic aspects of uh, what is an over-improvement, what is an under-improvement, what is functional obsolescence, what is external or, uh, 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 you know, many people say locational obsolescence, external obsolescence, or many years ago, extrinsic obsolescence. It all, mean, it all means the same thing. So there are articles that I have had the opportunity to write that are that are on there, uh, and uh, particularly for uh, people that uh, are trying to get into the business, these may may help you. Uh, you're welcome to uh, send me an email. My email address is on that website at martinappraisals.com, or you can uh, you can send me uh, an email, uh, don at martinappraisals.com. And um, I'll, I'll be happy to help you if I can, or, or uh, you can call me, uh, 708-609-8315. If I don't answer, maybe I'm out on an appraisal appointment, maybe I'm teaching class, or maybe one of those That's rare opportunities thing. I'm actually sleeping. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Just, just leave a message. Well, uh because I do have some clients that don't know where to draw the line at. I, I, when I, when I go to sleep, <laughs> when I, yeah, they don't know boundaries. So uh, uh, late at night when I, when I go to sleep Good for you, I actually turn all sound off. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, yeah. Uh, because if I didn't, there would be nights I would, I, I would not get a decent night's sleep. But other than that, uh, you know, Hey, leave a message. I, 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 I will get back to you. And um, I, I don't have all the answers. I want to make that perfectly clear. I do not have all the answers, but I usually, not always, I usually know who might have the answers. See, this is the value of having peers. I have peers that I bounce things off of. And it, it's, it's kind of like the old Clint Eastwood saying, which ties into competency, a man and, and, or a woman, a, a man has to know their limitations so that's an old famous yep. uh, phrase out of a Clint Eastwood yeah a man's got to know his limitations so that is a very use pap type statement that ties exactly. again into competency and so I, I cannot answer all, all your questions and, <laughs> and even after 45 years um, I, I, I don't have all the answers I was asked to appraise a water reclamation district once. That's not within my field of expertise. I was asked to appraise a missile silo once. <laughs> That's not within my my field of experience. Um, I was asked to do a very large quarry. Uh, I declined on that as well. Uh, so uh, we, you, you will never, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't think there's any individual appraiser. Mm -hmm. that knows all things about all property. So you, you have to recognize that. Uh, and if you want to do that, you have to find somebody that does yes. know how to do that type of property. And, and yeah, find, and ha ask them to, to teach you. And if they don't want to teach you, well, you, you, you've got to pass it along to somebody. 
I, I, I do have somebody I know that uh, all they all they do is yeah. is large wow. hotels. That's impressive. All over the country. Specialty, that's all they specialty, do. Specialty. Well, they're great at it, but that's all. They do. Yeah. If you ask them to do a 20,000 uh, square foot in industrial building that's 10% office that has 16 to 20 foot ceiling height, which is a pretty standard size industrial building with not 10% office, uh, <laughs> they might not have a barely a clue. Yeah, because they, yeah, they, don't, they don't have the data for it. They're not interested in doing it and, and so on. So there's nothing wrong with passing on an, a, a, an assignment. Uh, that that shows that you understand USPAP and knowing what it is that you can accept and can't. And if you get out to a property and it's beyond, there's nothing wrong with picking up the, the phone or sending the email or whatever to your client saying, hey, this turned out to be something Didn't expect. that I, yeah, I, exactly. I, I, I'm really not comfortable with. And so yep, you have to back out of the assignment. And maybe you don't get paid for any time you, you put into it. And that's a difficult yes. thing in your mind to deal with. But sometimes that is the best answer is to walk away and get zero paid for it and, and not have to deal with competency problems or or, uh, or reviews from people that do know what they're doing. No, and, and, you, and frankly, you didn't. You know, there are times that, as I said, I will in an in a, in assignment and sometimes that is, uh, is often the mark of a really good appraiser is knowing That's when to say no knowing when to decline and if you are if you are ever uncertain about what a client is asking you to do just because they have been around for many years does not mean that they are asking you to do something that is legitimate. If you feel the slightest bit uncomfortable about what you are being asked to do, start calling some of your peers and find out by asking them. Uh, just because uh, just because a lender or a government agency has been around forever uh, doesn't mean that they are telling you the correct thing. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what government agency. Because I can cite examples that I've been through in my career where I proved the government agency was asking me to do something well, and it wasn't, that was It wasn't the agency asking you to do something. So it was a person that, that, at the agency asking warm. you. And that person may not have even known what their agency was or was not right. in line with. Yep. Right. Because they, they, uh, they, misunderstood, they misunderstood either Illinois law or whatever state you might be from, or they misunderstood USPAP, uh, which, again, it's a difficult th thing to understand. It's a difficult thing to understand your respective state laws and how they affect you, as well as all, all the various types of regulations from FHA, VA, USDA, and, and various others that have overlapping requirements yes. on what it is that we do for, for a living. So you're not sure, sure, and and if that's you're uncomfortable, just simply the decline the assignment. Yeah, that is Do not be pressured in. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing, knowing to say no. See, so you have two choices uh, uh, on, uh, that come into play on every single ass assignment is, do I want to keep my license? Yes. Or do I want to keep yes. my client? We hope to keep both. But if you have to choose one, 
please choose your license. Keep your license. If you lose the client, you'll you'll have a chance to find another one. If you lose your license, that is a great point. And what a great place it's to over. end, Don. Thank you so much. This has been an amazing time and so insightful. Wow. Uh, all I can say is thank you. This is this is a dearth of information and insight for people to do well and uh, and and be a part of this profession for a long time to come. Thank you very much, Don. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pavru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose. We hope you enjoyed learning from the amazing life paths and achievements of our guests. Don't forget to like us on LinkedIn and other podcast channels to hear more from appraisers and valuers regarding their life and their work. If you have any suggestions or questions for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us a message on LinkedIn and we'll be sure to get back to you. Thanks again for listening, and until we're together again for the next session of Paru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose, create the change that you seek. 